That's the name of the show that we do. Uh, <laughs> Our very special episode of Breaking Mayberry. It is the podcast about figuring out why everything's on fire by watching old television, or in this case, an old movie. So it is our season finale. We got through season one of The Andy Griffith Show. Man, those last couple episodes of The Andy Griffith Show were just nothing. Some of them were something. The it, we, we ended on the real downer of bringing up Opie, which was just a vacuous piece of nothing. Yeah, it was it was absolute garbage. In order to give us something to end on this season with, we are talking about Andy Griffith's like first big star turn. We're talking about the film from 1957, directed by Elia Kazan, A Face in the Crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the movie that kind of propelled Andy Griffith himself, the actor, to fame i really have to say we talk a lot about how we're like learning about how everything is is fucked up from watching the andy griffith show watching this movie almost feels like cheating because it's like the cliff notes for our entire thesis i mean it almost makes me lose what little goodwill towards the andy griffith show i had and i'll explain that in a minute back up we're going to give a little bit of history first off so first you have to understand uh who andy griffith was at this point in time because it's 1956, 1957, Andy Griffith himself uh, got a name for himself on the comedy circuit. And he was known for doing the Will Rogers thing. And they name-checked Will Rogers about three times in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and he was well-known for, like, spinning these southernisms. He had a big hit record. It was called What It Was Was Football, uh, where he tells the story of, like, a person who didn't know what football was, watching and trying to describe football. It's very funny. Like... Uh, so that was how he was well known on the comedy in the fifties comedy circuit. That was kind of his character, the bit that he would do, and we've seen him do this bit numerous times on the Andy Griffith Show. And this movie is sort of, in a way, Andy Griffith kind of submitting to being dissected. Like, yeah, he's really putting himself out on the table for this, uh, and. Elia Kazan, we should talk about, the director of this movie. A magnificent fuckface of a director. And <laughs> to, be, to be diplomatic, Elia Kazan is a polarizing figure in Hollywood history. Uh, to be less dis- diplomatic, he's a piece of shit. He is an absolutely intolerable turd who just happens to also be a fucking genius. The thing is, Elia Kazan has made some of my favorite films. On the Waterfront is one of my favorite films of all time. So by this point, he had a huge career, too. He had, he had won Oscars and two Pulitzers. Uh, not on the waterfront. Uh, other Marlon Brando film. Um, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Thank you. Streetcar, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He was friends with Arthur Miller. Uh, and most notably, so this is 1957. This is three or four years after Elia Kazan did the thing that is he's most famous for, which is... Naming names. Being a goddamn snitch. He went to a couple of communist meetings, they didn't really like him that much, and they made him do actual work 
So he got, uh, he quit in a huff, and then later, when the, uh, when it, when the HUAC came along, he named names after, like, a little bit of, of, of hand-wringing. Like, yeah, he, he came twice, right, in 1954. In January, where he did not name names, he pled the fifth, and then four months later, he kind of, uh, went ahead and sold out a bunch of his friends. Now, the, after the, briefly talking to his therapist, his therapist was like, "Hey, you sure you want to do this?" And he was like, "Oh, you're right." Now, the thing about Ilya Kazan that is like interesting is that he definitely became a better filmmaker afterwards. Yeah, all of his movies after that were fantastic and uh, kind of masterworks, but they were all a little bit self-aggrandizing. They were all a little autobiographical, especially. On the Waterfront, one of my favorite films, which, while the moral like implications of On the Waterfront are a little bit grayer, uh, and Marlon Brando's character is quite clearly the hero in that film, it is also easily read as, like, snitching is good, the movie. In uh, his case, he's snitching on the mob. Right. He he made apparently uh this was he he made, kept making movies years and years after this. Apparently this was not an isolated thing of he would just every now and then pop up in one of his own films and just be like and another thing about how it's great that I snitched. He did this bad thing that he knew was bad and spent the remainder of his career trying to rewrite history. The rest of his life and I I've, I've read passages of the autobi- of his autobiography. He's really just lacks any self-awareness it's we're, we're gonna talk about this a little bit because it's it's clear throughout this movie it's, it's but the, sort... the way that he writes it he makes himself sound like an asshole but it feels like he's writing in a way that he thinks he's the hero like, yeah uh and it should be pointed out that before naming names he was previously a dick he cheated on his wife a lot and he had like nothing but nasty things to say about people in his life and he was just kind of a backstabbing fink through that the entire thing now to give a sense of his relationship with the communist party uh he eventually left because he realized that if they were sleeping three to a bed where would they fuck yeah like that that's a, an actual excerpt from his di- diary at the time. He described himself as too much of an elitist to be a communist. Yeah, and to and the way he also like dolled it up was uh through the rugged individualism. <laughs> like if you're in a commune, you lose your rugged. I mean, it feels like he didn't understand what communism was to begin with. He was basically an anti-capitalist who tried out communism, didn't like communism. And then just was like, oh, well, I'll just sort of put together some sort of pa- patchwork ideology rather than do any further reading. And if you watch the uh, making of the like documentary that came with A Face in the Crowd, which yeah. I swear we're going to get to in a minute, they do their best to like acquit him. It's yeah. him and Bud Schulberg, another writer, the writer of On the Waterfront, who also named names Yeah, uh, to the House... An American Activities Committee. Both of them are really to the the end of their days defending it. It's also a little disheartening to hear old Andy Griffith, the actor, the man, describe communism as another form of slavery. In in his defense, in the context, it seems like he was saying that that is what Elia Kazan thought it was. I mean, but it's it's said with a little bit of like old man agreeingness. I think. Agreement is the actual word he used there. Yeah, there. There's a couple explanations for that, and one that just basically, like, in the back of everyone's head back then, there might as well have been, like, a gun slightly off stage, just pointing at you. Like, like everyone, you had to talk shit on communism. 
I mean, uh, sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah. But I'm talking about a, a documentary made recently. But then again, yeah. then again, like the words communism and socialism mean very different things to you and I and than y- they do to people who are generations above us. Yeah, no, the the living in the shadow of the USSR did some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was, By the it, way, we're going to mention a lot of this stuff. Uh, we're pulling from Karina Longworth's. Uh, you must remember this episode eighty two. Her entire unit on the blacklist is pretty essential reading uh, or listening. As we're going to be increasingly talking about McCarthyism. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, we've talked about Frank Tarloff. We've talked it slash David Adler on the show a couple of times. Uh, and we're now in the 1960s when the Andy Griffith show airs. We are 15 years removed from. No, no, we're about 10 years removed from the height of McCarthyism. Yeah. But it, but we're sort of like we're within the scars of McCarthyism. Yeah, it, it's definitely still having its impact. I just want one hero from McCarthyism, just one person that it is involved in this podcast that I can like because I thought it was Frank Tarlov who didn't name names. He's just a pus-filled sexist, and now we got this guy who yeah, we, did name we, names. But we don't get a Dalton Trumbo penned episode of the Andy I Griffith know. Show, God unfortunately. Damn it! Let's let's actually get into the movie A Face in the Crowd. Yeah, so... This uh, movie's good as hell. It's incredible. It's one of my... Not one of my favorite movies now, but I loved this this movie so much. Especially having the, having watched the Andy Griffith show makes it 10,000 times better. Yeah, so this is, I think, Andy Griffith's his first, like, starring role. It's, yeah. it's like his second or third film role. One of which was the adaptation of uh, Make Room for Sergeants. Which was the first time he worked with Don Knotts. Yeah. So he and Don Knotts had worked together prior to the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, so this is this is released in 1957, four years prior to the premiere of the Andy Griffith Show, mm-hmm. and I want that like kept in mind that this is this predates uh, Andy Taylor and Mayberry. This the story opens in basically I, I think it'd be best described as like Southern small town America, a cool hand Luke ass jail. Uh, none of the guys are, are in any sort of, like, prison garment for some reason, but they're all hanging out in a jail cell, uh, and a woman goes to the jail and, and starts looking for people to be on her radio show, A Face in the Crowd, titular, uh, and discovers a relatively young Andy Griffith. Um, and the, the, so, so basically Andy Griffith is is this drunk, he's this, is basically a hobo, he just wanders from place to place playing his guitar getting drunk so that he can sleep in jail cells, uh, getting into all manner of relatively benign crimes, uh, and it just sort of is, is, a, is, a, is a miscreant drifter. It's so interesting watching this jail scene in comparison to what, like, jail is in the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. Because here you get the feeling that these are, like, not dangerous criminals, but you get the feeling that they're in there for drunken, disorderly conduct. Yeah. And they, they're basically a group of Otises, but they're what Otis lo- would look like in real life. It is Andy Griffith as Otis. It's so weird. And, and but the, so, We'll point out, there's only one man who is actually, like, behind bars, and it's, like, the first time we see a black man in this movie. And and while she is uh, going around the jail asking for the prisoners to, to sing for her, she goes up to the black uh, uh, to the black guy behind the bars, and he he explicitly says, "Just because I'm black, I'm no minstrel." Right. Yeah. yeah. So they're immediately getting off a of political tone, and it, again, j- this is years before the Andy Griffith Show, and it's sort of like just just stark to see how political they could get in 
when when they're when they're trying to. Yeah, no, you 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 we've we've sort of given them the benefit of the doubt a little bit and said like, oh, they're pe- they they were being as political as they could be. They were painting with this limited brush. No, absolutely not. This is more of a choice than I initially gave it. Well, it, movies and TV are different. Exactly, but, exactly. Yeah. Like movies did not nearly have the same reach that television did at that time. True. Um, it, it, but it is sort of like a stark difference. Yeah. The thing that really like freaks me out is eventually after they wake Andy Griffith's character up, who uh, is eventually named Lonesome Rhodes. Yeah, his name is Larry Rhodes, and they give him the, the cool nickname of Lonesome. Okay, fucking rules. Uh, uh, and uh, by the way, the woman's name is uh, Marsha Jeffries, played by Patricia Neal. Picture like uh, like a Sarah Koenig type. Like 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 an NPR yeah. kind of report reporter. Yeah, this is like she's looking for a big story and like looking for the next person to make a podcast she, about. Essentially, she's looking for her S town. Yes, uh, and yeah, she she goes into the jail cell and uh, she's looking for one of the prisoners to sing for. And she and someone says, "Oh, get the uh, the drunk guitar player. Wake him up." And they they wake up Andy Griffith, and he uh, basically becomes Andy Griffith. Uh, he, he starts playing his guitar and telling stories about his uh, his dad in his small town home and, and being real charming. But the but cool thing like is, a, is... It's like darker Griffith. Yeah, Because he's, he's, his guitar is slightly off-tune. He's not singing with his like country soul voice. He's just like screaming with anger. He's talking about, about how a guitar is better than a woman because uh, you can just get in... You can just tune together and suddenly you're in harmony and she ain't never gonna run around when my back is turned. But he's, so he's being a little bit of like a like an R-rated Andy Griffith. Sure, sure. Uh, but before he becomes that that the, the character that's like really recognizable, there's this really cool shot that sort of like sets the tone of the entire thing where they wake him up and he's like this snarling animal, uh, and then he sort of realizes that he's being watched and then very slowly composes himself into the Andy Griffith that we know and depending on which episode of the podcast we're on, love. So that that sort of sets the tone for the entire thing of sort of establishing that, like, beneath the Andy Griffith that we all know, there is sort of this this kind of beast. This opening scene is really interesting to me because there are three elements, at least in this opening scene, that we see in the first season of The Andy Griffith Show. First, you got the, the jailhouse. Uh, you got Marsha Jeffries coming in with a portable recorder, just like the one we talked about at length in Mayberry on Record. Yeah. And then they give Andy the guitar and let him sing, which we've complained about numerous times. Like, all we needed was for one guard to whip out a harmonica and actually play the goddamn thing. And it would literally be just nega Mayberry. The, yeah, no, I, I was waiting for, like, evil Don Knotts to show up with, like, a like a, a thin mustache doing something. Actually, wait, there is an evil Don Knotts. They, they ask, like, a guy to sing, and he kind of has, like, Don Knotts' same chinless quality. He does have, a, a like, a wimpy sidekick throughout this movie. Yeah. A couple of times. His name is Beanie. I think uh, anytime Andy Griffith stands still for a prolonged period of time, a guy shaped like Don Knotts just kind of grows next to him. It's kind of like a uh, like a Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of thing, and just the broomstick comes to life. Golly! There's like 15,000 Don Knotts clones just like wandering up to him every single day, be like, hey, you looking for a goofy sidekick? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm still working on the last one, but hey, check back in in a little while. Uh, uh, so he's released from jail, and as he's leaving, 
his voice that went out over the airwaves on this program, a face in the crowd, starts turning people's heads. They yeah. start getting calls to the radio station about it. It's very, oh, brother, where art thou? Mm. Uh, and people really want to hear more of this guy, Lonesome Road. The radio producers, like, get in a car and chase him down. They bring him to the radio, where he cultivates this personality of Larry Lonesome Roads, just an old-time folk from Arkansas, and he becomes basically like a, a radio DJ. He he starts doing this move where uh, he'll be like, they bring him on, and it's the, the deal is like, you tell a story, you play your guitar, minutes done. And he starts doing a thing of like, I'm going to stop playing my guitar, and I'm going to reference the fact that I'm on a TV show and say that, I don't totally respect the rules of this program I am. Basically, he gets meta as sort of like a way of like of standing out. He he talks about the show he's on. At one early on he he mentions like now my my manager's giving me a 3 minute warning. Ain't that just the 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 downside of having a job is people are always making you hurry. Like he, he he's doing a postmodern home companion. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. It's he, it, it should also be mentioned that in the process of being on this radio show, he brings up his hometown of Riddle for the first time, which becomes sort of like really important, especially in the context of what we talk about, because Riddle is, is where Lonesome Roads is from. And it's this small town, little bit, little quirky place where everyone's constantly drinking moonshine, but they got that small town wisdom and they know things a little bit better than everyone else. And he'll he'll constantly break out the uh, the goofy, drunken, backwoods wisdom of his hometown of Riddle as a way to sort of push an agenda. Yeah, while he's talking to Marsha during a bar, he, he casually reveals that Riddle is not a town that exists. It's never a place that he's been. It's a composite of various places he's been into a single concept of a town. So he's basically created Mayberry and using it to enforce his political agenda. In the very next scene, he starts using it to enforce, resolve personal beefs. Yeah. Uh, he is beaten up by the sheriff, who was holding him in the jail cell initially, strikes back by... By uh, coming on to the radio program and talking about the town of Riddle, uh, and how in, in Riddle, they choose sheriffs by the way they choose dog catchers. Something along those lines. And he essentially says, like, uh, I don't think our sheriff could be a dog catcher, but if you find a stray dog, why don't you send him over to our sheriff's house and see if he can settle the or handle the job? And we cut to like the sheriff's house, who has now just got dozens of dogs just running around his yard. Yeah, which apparently there were a bunch of people in this small town that were just sick of their dogs. Yeah, they were just they just dropped all these dogs off, uh, which is kind of like the first shock jock radio prank i kind of assume like a little bit but it was sort of he he organizes a spontaneous political protest but just by invoking the small town values a riddle just destroys this guy's political career by having a massive demonstration of his incompetence he disguises it as like a political he disguises himself as kind of a robin hood slash oprah figure yeah uh he gets in an argument with his producer so he tells all the kids in town to go to his producer's pool it's a hot day, kids, but you know what our producer's going to do? He's going to open up his home for everyone, and everyone can go to a pool party. Yeah. And so he presents himself as a Robin Hood figure, but it's really just a, using the power of his voice to settle petty disputes. Yeah. Uh, and he starts to realize, oh, when I say things, people do them. Now, remember, we've talked about Andy like emotionally manipulating people on The Andy Griffith Show. 
We've talked about him being a con man, essentially. This is sort of, it's it's less con man in this and more cult. Yeah. It is the ability to sway people on a mass level by using various forms of emotional and mental manipulation. More emotional. Because he, he, he really, like, demonstrates a lot of ways of controlling the way that people perceive him. One of them is through this concept of riddle, of creating this idealized place that's simultaneously inferior and superior. Because he, he, he presents riddle as like, riddle, he, he, he always talks about riddle as like kind of a shithole where everyone's drunk. And he's like, but this shithole I'm from is somehow smarter than all of you. Isn't it crazy that a dumb place has, has figured out this thing that none of you understand yet? And he, he like, so he weaponizes the concept of like, of basically Mayberry, of this dumb town. And he also, like, develops over the course of this, like, all these ways of controlling the way that he's perceived that are really reminiscent of people like Louis C.K. and, to a lesser extent, Donald Trump, more so George W. Bush. In the lead-up to this, we hear a lot of people saying that this movie predicted the rise of Donald Trump, and in a way it kind of does, when he talks about, like, the power of vulgarity and stuff, yeah. and, like, real simple. But... More than anything, I got a George W. Bush vibe off of it. This, like, real fake Texan, aw shucks, kind of cowboy, kind of, oh, I'm just a simple country boy. I'm just a simple country politician. That's just a complete fabrication. Yeah. So, yeah, more than anything, it felt like, like George W. Bush. And really just kind of the basic premise of the GOP in general, which is all millionaires pretending to be dirt poor farmers what happens in iowa every four years essentially exactly yeah just like the 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 cowboy hat belt buckle strut just just to basically weaponize the myth of small town america so after the pool party stunt he gets a call from a television station in memphis to move him on there and even he even declines a paycheck for the first couple of weeks just to like appeal to his audience and keep that like Small town, ah shucks thing going. Yeah. So he goes to Memphis and he brings his show on the road, essentially. And he gets a sponsor. And he does like a a big Norm MacDonald thing of roasting the sponsor on the air. It's really funny because like that's exactly how you can sell shit these days. Advertisers don't even understand yet that nothing will make us buy your product faster than just having like a podcast host roast you yeah like or maybe they do that's why you know that's why everyone is sponsored by blue apron and casper mattresses we're not blue apron those fuck faces with their (laughs) shitty ass food zip recruiter they're get you jobs or shit i don't know zip recruiter they don't work it doesn't (laughs) no one's getting jobs through zip recruiter those ads are lies I, th- I think the reverse psychology is, is working. We're going to get sponsorship deals any day. Any day now. Any day. But this is what he does. He, like, makes fun of his sponsor, which is like a mattress king, he, on he, the air. He does a big show of it. He goes to read the sheet, and he's like, okay, I got the ad right here that they're making me read. Oh, no, 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 no. Those are the horses I was going to bet on later. Ignore those. All right. Here is the words that they want me to read. These words are stupid, and I'm not going to read them anymore. Like, he does a big whole, like, like ripping up the, the list and, like, making a big show of how he's not going to read the words. He sings his song, Free Man in the Morning. It's got a call and response thing, which in this context feels very cultish. Lots of songs have calls and responses. Lots of singers will just stop and let the crowd sing stuff. And but... they kind of pick the sponsor really well because the sponsor is a mattress depot. He comes down real hard and... 
anti-mattress. And he's like, you could just sleep on the floor, you idiots. Like, you could sleep wherever. You don't need a good mattress, which is like a kind of a, a beautifully arbitrary pi- fight to pick. It's they, they picked the most benign sponsor early on for him to go toe-to-toe with. Or when the mattress company drops him as a sponsor, people throw a shit fit. They have a shot of, like, people rioting in the streets, burning their damn mattresses in the trash can. Just like people smash their damn coffee Ye- pots when Keurig's pulled their sponsor of Sean Hannity. Yeah. It's exactly that. But you, I want to laugh and be like, oh... It's insane that people would throw physical riots over the cancellation of a TV show. Absolutely not. No, completely plausible. We will burn shit to the ground over the cancellation of a children's show. We're there, baby. It kind of is, again, like really predictive. It's presenting it as like this insane, crazy scenario that fans would become physically violent. And they would get angry over, like, sponsorship of their, like, small-town god that gives them these opinions of wisdom. And if this isn't reminiscent of today enough, let's see where Lonesome goes after this. Let's see where his next grift is. So the scene after this is so buck fucking wild it takes it, at first it's like kind of like coen brothers E the show up until this point i think like that's that's a fair sure yeah, yeah 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 it goes abruptly lichian with a touch of rocky horror picture show it gets so fucking weird so out of left field and then kind of goes back to being a normal movie this this film was clearly very influential on a lot of people yeah um, it introduces the pill of Vitajex, which they introduce in a boardroom meeting with a chemist saying, all right, so the pill is like the smallest amount of caffeine and then sugar and a bunch of chemicals that don't really do anything good. And, and they're like and, like... and like trace amounts of aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so to be clear, these are placebos. Yeah. 100% placebos. And they're like, so what's your point? They're like, all right, so this won't, these won't kill you, but these literally don't do anything and they so they bring on lonesome roads as like a consultant to 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 help them fix their brand as a new spokesman we should mention that by this point lonesome has got a new basically an agent uh called joey de palma who if this were a coen brothers film this would definitely be the john turturro role 100 percent. yeah so joey joey de palma books him an appointment with these vitajex people to be kind of their new spokesperson i guess Fun thing, this character was actually how we invented John Turturro. <laughs> we wrote this character and John Turturro just popped out of the ether, fully formed. Joey De Palma gets him gets him the the boardroom meeting. John Turturro gets him the boardroom meeting. And and so Lonesome comes in and just does a fucking Tex Avery wolf style thing. He takes a Vitajex and then pretends to be horny as fuck. His like, whole his whole pitch is the pills are pink. They shouldn't be pink because that makes them look sickly and and unappealing. What they should be is yellow, the cover color of the sun. And then he goes from there and he's like, you take you get some sun in you and a man gets all horny and virile and sexually aggressive. And then he takes one, he's like, "Oh, and I get that Vitajex in me." And then he charges at one of the secretaries and she runs out of the room shrieking. Like yeah. it, fi- actual fear, like like and and then he charges at 
another secretary who also runs out of the room shrieking. And everyone there is just kind of laughing, including Marsha, the producer, who has been along with him this entire time. Yeah. We should clear that up. Marsha, like, the woman who discovered him, has stayed with him this yeah. entire time. We're moving pretty fast. I feel like we should go back and, and establish that he has been sleeping with prostitutes. This entire thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're, you're probably getting a good sense of the kind of person we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah, uh, in, in a, like, Mad Men-style pitch, just takes over this account, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and, again, they're placebo pills that are sold on, like, how masculine and how much they boost your testosterone. It's gorilla mindset bullshit. It's... It's Ben Shapiro, Alex Jones, Mike Cernovich bullshit that is just, like... It's still there. Yeah. It's, it's the ultimate right-wing grift. He, do you think that this has been happening the entire way through and we just, it, are only recently super aware of it? Or do you think that, like, he w- this movie was just incredibly predictive? I mean, grifters are gonna grift. Yeah. There, there have been grifters throughout the centuries. And this one just, like, suddenly points out that television exists. Yeah. This is in the early days of television, and they realize, oh, television reaches the masses. You have to realize how fast TV is growing at this rate. In 1952, in the early 1950s, 1951, 1952, roughly 9% of American households had a television set. Yeah. By the time the Andy Griffith Show premieres in 1960, 90%. Yeah. The rise of television, the ubiquity of television, was just so rapid. And people were being trained to, like, assess media images, but only for red scares. Yeah. Assess them, essentially, for Americanism. By the time this movie's made, it's, what, 1950, at least 1957, probably being filmed around 1956. Mm -hmm. So, American TV ownership has probably just crossed the 50% line. Yeah. Suddenly, the majority of the airwaves are dominated by television, suddenly you can reach the majority of America with one voice at one time. And remember, Andy became so fucking ubiquitous during the 60s. So that's part of what's happening in this. And I feel like throughout the whole thing, Lonesome Roads kind of represents television. Because there is sort of this thing of there's a bunch of, of, of wealthy men sitting in boardrooms just with Lonesome Roads and also TV just sort of saying like, there's this thing, it's new, it's incredibly powerful, none of us understand how to use it, but we know that we need it uh, because it's going to make us a million dollars instantaneously. Uh, so it is sort of like, the, the it is really showing capitalism's weird, confusing relationship with new media. Patek Chayefsky and Sidney Lumet take on the same themes 20 years later in Network. Uh, with very similar, uh, very similar kinds of characters. In that case, it's a man losing his mind on the air. I just felt like we need this would be the time to drop in that I have in fact seen Network. <laughs> in case we get an email like, "Have you seen Network?" <laughs> we have seen Network. Don't add us. Yeah. So it really is this like uncorking of a bottle of of like up until this point. Uh, Lonesome Rhodes has been sort of, you're, you're not sure whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy. Um, like maybe, you, you know, he's Seems pretty clear to me by this point, but all right. Uh, I, I think like up until this point, he was supposed to be like, do I trust this lovable rogue? Cause it, it, something we should point out is, uh, he does good shit. 
a lot. In addition to like the the stuff like that that was pettier, he also his first act on the the television show is he brings on an a uh, uh, an old black woman and someone on the show Rebecca Men's like like remarks like oh my god bringing a black woman onto TV in Memphis like, yeah that's, that's so true. brave and and he talks about how her home has been destroyed in a fire and how she needs money for it and he raises her money to get a new house he uh er, on when he's on the radio station. He talks about uh, how much harder women have it and how they're unappreciated by the men in their lives. And he sort of espouses like some basic, like sort of proto-feminist ideas. So he's not. He, he does. He does like a Jerry Lewis telethon kind of thing at some point when he's he, like at the height of his Vitajek stuff. Yeah, he raises. He, he, he points. He paints himself as like like an Oprah. Like yeah. A, like it sort of gives the ten- sense of like. Okay, he's kind of a scumbag, but maybe he's a good scumbag? Maybe he's like a lovable rogue with a heart of gold? Yeah, maybe. And then Vitajex comes along, and and it's sort of like the whole thing just, just stops. The Vitajex sequence is so weird and okay, bizarre. Yeah. So it cuts to the Vitajex dancers, like women in like scantily clad sailor uniforms dancing and singing about Vitajex. Him, a close-up of Andy Griffith. Uh, like, like, zoomed in on his mouth. Like, ah! <laughs> uh, a series of surreal images. Like, they do the, um... The Charles Atlas, like, sand kicked in the face, like... But with, with a pig. The beach, with, a, with an anime... Uh, uh, something that, like, looks like Warner Brothers should have sued because it's basically Porky Pig. Yeah, uh, and then he takes a Vitajex, his head turns into a wolf head, and he just... It's implied that the pig man just fucks his girlfriend on the beach right there. Uh, and, and then it cuts to one of the weirdest scenes of the entire movie, and one, like, one of the weirdest scenes I've seen in recent memory of a, a woman on a bed going, like, take Vitajex, like Lonesome Rose does, and then points to her industrial side bottle of Vitajex, which is the size of two lamps duct taped together. Uh, there's also, like, she keeps talking like her mouth is moving, but, like, an announcer's voice is coming, is, like, covering up whatever she's saying. So I think, like, when her mouth is moving, that's when she's being filthy, right? Like, yeah. It's, just, it's subliminal. She's probably not, like, the actress probably didn't actually say anything. No. But but subliminal, I was like, she's saying, fuck me. Yeah. She's saying, she's saying, fuck me. She's saying, put put it here. Just, the, the, her expression is transmitting that she is saying just the dirtiest shit right yeah. now. Yeah. So it, it's a fucking Rorschach test. You just get to imagine whatever this... <laughs> This blonde is, is saying. It, it, it takes a, a hard left into just avert surreal sexuality. Oh, and, and every time, like, he gets the crowd to go, ooh, yeah, ooh, and every time there's an ooh, like a, like an orgasmic ooh, the, like, Vitajex share stock, like, jumps up. And the, there's a uh, a thermometer going up to symbolize the... The uh, the boost in vitality that you get from Vitajex. There's there's a lot of it's, so much boner symbolism. It's it's there's a lot of innuendo there. Uh, it's it's not real subtle. So that's and at that point, right, we get this weird montage of people just being like, suddenly Lonesome Roads becomes a household name, and they yeah. start giving him weird shit. Like I I understand like all right, he gets he gets an apartment, he gets a penthouse. That's fine, whatever. They name a fucking ship after him. They name a mountain they name after a him. mountain after Can him. Can you do that? Can you just name a mountain after a dude? And like, I'm that, that's where like the suspension of disbelief goes away a little bit because we don't have like a fucking Mount Oprah. Dude, I don't think there's unnamed mountains. Like, you can't just change a mountain name, can you? Like, they weren't like, oh, we've been meaning to name that mountain. How about we just name it after Conan O'Brien? President Obama did. 
Except he changed the name of the mountain back to what it was originally. He changed Mount McKinley back to Denali. But oh, yeah, no, yeah. That was a big thing. Yeah, uh, I forgot about that. I forgot about the weird rage that we all had to deal with for a week as a result of that. But, yeah, no, yeah, there's there's no, like, I really like Andy Samberg. Let's just name this lake after him. <laughs> hey, is, yeah, has anyone been watching, uh, has, has anyone been watching The Good Place? Like, I, let's I, I think I think Ted Danson. Yeah. Ted Danson probably deserves, like, an estuary. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Just, just start naming <laughs> natural features after just like, was there just a mayor who was like, I really, I need to pander to these fucking people. Like, who just has an unnamed mountain? We've been meaning to name this mountain. Oh, this lines out perfectly. It's the damnedest thing, right? It was like Brexit. We had a vote on it, but then we didn't really know how to, like, pull the trigger. This really beats Mount Redacted. I'm really glad we did this. And then he, he they name a boat after him, and he, like, smashes a bottle on a boat. Not just a boat. It's, it's the SS Rhodes. It is a, like... It is a military boat. Yeah. It is an armed forces boat. Yeah. Ship. We keep saying boat. It's a fucking, it's a fucking carrier. I, I refuse to recognize the difference between boats and ships. All ships are boats. Don't at me. Uh, uh, yeah, no. So he, and then, uh, it culminates with, and I think this is why everyone draws the Trump comparison with him getting his own tower in the center of the city with his own personal, uh, his own personal residence on the top of the tower. Sure. And it's Trump Tower is all fucked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looks like Trump Tower. It, it sort of it is that kind of, uh, like, obelisk of decadence. So uh, he calls Marsha to his tower, mm-hmm. uh, under threat of suicide, essentially. Yes. Uh, saying, like, if you don't come, I'm gonna jump. Like, while one of his, uh, like... Mistresses is mi- leaving. yeah. Brings her over and proposes to her, which she's kind of like, I know you're a piece of shit, and you're probably going to hurt me really bad. Do you promise not to? And he's like, he's not even like, yeah, he's like, I mean, yeah, I guess. If that's really important to you that I don't destroy you emotionally at any point, sure. She does not really. She doesn't ask for a lot in this. Uh, in this, yes, we get like two scenes before it's revealed that Lonesome Rhodes is in fact already married. Yeah, his wife comes in demanding three thousand a month. You're marrying him. We're separated because he fucked my best friend. What are you doing? Give me money and I'll go away. Goodbye. Lonesome's explanation for this is that like. He got it done in Juarez. He got it done like a, with a shady judge in Mexico, but then the judge was locked up for fraud, and therefore the divorce was a fraud. So he's got to go down to Juarez and get it fixed again. But before he can do that, he has to go to this town in Arkansas, which I guess is like posing as Riddle. Like, yeah. That, like this town is claiming to be the home of Lonesome Roads, and he has to go because he has to judge a beauty pageant, essentially. <laughs> which, guess what? Is a fucking Andy Griffith show episode. Full circle, baby. He has to go and judge a baton twirling contest. Yeah. He's got to like pick like 
like Miss Junior South or whatever. There's a very male gazy, very weird baton twirling sequence. You, you just basically chose a fancy way of saying a lot of shots of butts. I did. Yeah. I did. So that is where Lonesome Roads meets a 17-year-old girl who I'm not even going to name. I honestly am unsure if she's ever named in it. Uh, she only really has, like, three lines in the entire movie. And they're all in reference to having sex with someone. Yeah, so he meets this 17-year-old girl, looks at her lavishly. Yeah. Uh, next thing we know, he's married to that 17-year-old. Now, please, please recall, in the Andy Griffith Show episode, The Beauty Contest, The Beauty Pageant, we pointed out how fucking weird it is to have one man judge your entire beauty contest. And then we said... This is the South. This could be a fucking Roy Moore situation. Yeah. If he wanted to, he could just be like, well, your daughter won the pageant, and now I'm taking her home with me. And that's exactly what happens in this movie! Can you fucking imagine if, like, Woody Harrelson rolled into a small town, judged a, a judged a beauty pageant, and then just grabbed one of the contestants and was fucking off? Like, that would be in the news for months. I, I'm glad you chose Woody Harrelson because I'm thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, all right. I can see I can see what that being a Woody Harrelson thing. You were basically completely vindicated by this movie. That like, yeah, no, that was what was totally going on in that episode, and that was there was some weird child bride bullshit happening. Holy shit. So he goes down to Juarez to get the divorce, but he comes back from Juarez married to a 17-year-old. Marsha is absolutely destroyed by this, completely despondent. Basically just really cementing his status as a grade A piece of shit. But he still wants to be able to, like, manipulate Marsha, and he does. He basically says, like, I was afraid to marry you, I'm not good enough for you. Mm. So, feeds are a load of horse shit. And, and this sort of brings up one of the styles of manipulation that this really points out. Selectively calling yourself a piece of shit. Calling yourself a piece of shit as a form of control. Because throughout the entire thing, uh, Lonesome Rhodes, both on and off air, will point out that he's a drunk, that he's a gambler, that he's a womanizer, that he's stupid. He'll never claim that he's smart or better than you in any way. And is sort of controlling your criticism of him. By constantly showing his belly in very specific ways, he's controlling the ways in which you can criticize him. And basically making them completely inept. Because if you go up to Lonesome Roads and say, you're a piece of shit alcoholic, he'll be like, well, yeah, I got a three-minute anecdote about that on my most recent episode. It's reminiscent of Louis C.K. And how he, that grift that he ran for so long of like, hey, everybody, I'm a piece of shit. Let me tell you about what a piece of shit I am. And then make some weird fat jokes, even though Louis C.K. isn't really that fat. I don't think he was ever fat enough to make those fat jokes, whatever. Yeah, yeah. no, just mildly, like, Uncle just, Chubby. Just slide that, sliding that in there. Yeah. I've always felt that way. One, you, you're sort of endeared by it because you're like, oh, look at him. He's, he's exposing himself to me. He's, like, showing his vulnerability. And and also, you you because he's he's shown he's told you that he's a piece of shit in a very specific way, you don't ask any further questions about, like, what other ways he might be a piece of shit. Please consider that this is, like, coming from a director who is known to be autobiographical in his characters and wants to control the way that people, like, history remembers him and is incredibly bad at it. Everyone in this movie 
it's telling on themselves so bad. So much. So and much. Andy Griffith is revealing that his whole shtick is sort of bullshit, and he is basically... Kazan is just nuking himself. Just like Lonesome Rhodes was in a position where he was the master and like everyone knew his name and was big on him, that's the position that Kazan was in in the 50s. He yeah. was the Steven Spielberg of his time. Yeah. He had that much clout. So he knows exactly what it's like to be in that position. He also knows what it's like to be in the position of somebody who, like, discovered and created uh, big stars. That was his thing. He knows what it's like to be in Marion Jeffrey's position as well. Remember, not only did he discover Andy Griffith, Elia Kazan also gave us Marlon Brando, James Dean, Warren Beatty, mm. like... He was a star maker at this point. Yeah. So it's a very, very interesting. Everyone's telling on themselves. And, and, and I think so. Move on to the next thing of uh, Lonesome Roads gets political. Yeah. Which is like just, just again further drawing the the straight line between the Andy Griffith Show and modern day. I mean, not only does Lonesome Roads get political, he's he's brought into politics by like a marketing man, the Colonel, essentially the general, the general. Uh, who points out that, like, it's not enough to just be a personality. You could be an influencer. Yeah. And that's a term we hear a lot these days, right? A media influencer. Ben Shapiro is an influencer. But, like, on Instagram, you are an influencer. Yeah, it's it's like this broad catch-all term. Yeah, like, so it's it's not just enough, yes, people like you, and there's a certain amount of power that comes with that. But when people listen to you, when you're a trendsetter then there's, like, ultimate power. The ability and, to control people. And that's how he gets involved in the campaign of this guy, Fuller. So Fuller is basically uh, this extremely milquetoast, uninteresting, shitty public speaker politician. His opinions are far-right, complete destruction of the so uh, social safety net. Yeah, he's uh, he's on record uh, being against Social Security. He's on record being against like any kind of like welfare systems or whatever. And, so extreme and conservative talks about like the whole uh, that that whole line of like oh it's it's patronizing and everyone wants a handout and what happened to, to to pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? But he can't get the message out because no one wants to listen to this like rich dude tell them that he's going to take away all of their security. Yeah, he he's like rich and prissy in every single way. Yeah. Uh, Lonesome asks him if he has a pet, and he's like, my wife and I have a Siamese cat, which is like a big, pardon the phrase, dog whistle that says, this guy's a, a, a Nancy, he's yeah. a prissy, and so Lonesome's like, you don't got a Siamese cat, you got a dog! Yeah. You gotta have a dog. My audience wants you to have a dog. Which draws comparisons to the fact that all the presidents eventually get dogs to like increase their likability, uh, Nixon's dog checkers. Uh, with the exception of Donald Trump. Yeah. Who's never had a pet. You know, absolutely normal thing. Very normal for a person to just be completely averse to having pets, right? Just, That's a normal thing. I mean, within his, his almost mystifying ability to defy all likability, he just, just no one told him, like, hey, people like you slightly better if you have a dog. People like animals. No one, yeah. no one mentioned no, that. You don't ever have to be in the same room as it. Just say you have a dog. So he like, becomes a consultant for this guy. And he cre he crafts an entire persona for him. Uh, yeah, he, he, gives, he gives him like a little makeover, essentially, right there in the boardroom. The whole pitch is, you're going to be 
become a tough guy. You're going to become a hard-fighting, hard-spitting cowboy who talks about all of the same shit, but as the, in the context of a rough-and-tumble guy who's trying to save you, Lonesome Roads listeners, from government intervention. So basically, you're watching the invention of the modern conservative in, in one film scene. Which uh, wouldn't be, if it was like today, like, who gives a shit? Like, yeah. Uh, but this was in the 50s. So not only that, but then Lonesome has the idea for his next television program. This is where you can see he's flying a little bit too close to the sun. Mm. Uh, he comes up with the idea for Lonesome Rhodes' Cracker Barrel. Uh, which is, like, literally, it, it's almost hee-haw. The first time he talks about it, it's like it sounds like hee-haw, where he's just like, Get me a, a cast of colorful country characters. I'm like, yeah, you're describing mm-hmm. hee-haw. And he says, but they're all just sitting around listening to Lonesome Rhodes' wisdom. He surrounds himself with actors that are playing Southern characters who are getting paid to just say, that's right, Lonesome Rhodes. That's right. Good job, Andy. Get me a toothless Greek chorus, would you? Yeah. <laughs> I just want, I, yeah, no, I just want really a barber shop to agree with me. It, yeah, no, it is... Basically, he he transitions from entertainer to, like, preacher. Yeah. 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 And he uses that show, The Cracker Barrel, to have this senator on to, like, build up his new image. And by doing that, he gets him from, like, an 11% approval rating to, like, a 57% approval rating through his appearances on Lonesome Rose's Cracker Barrel. I I should also point out, at some point in time, the 17-year-old cheats on him with the John Turturro character, De Palma. Uh, and he basically washes his hands of both of them. Yeah. Basically no, tells them both to go fuck well, themselves. No, he she actually, gets a couple of lines during their breakup, and that's it. So he tries to fire John Turturro, and John Turturro says, like, Hey, man, do you notice that I bought your entire company? I'm your boss. I own 51% of Lonesome Roads Enterprises. You can't fire me, and I'm going to continue fucking your wife. Uh, and then he's like, Well, I'm firing her then! And she's like, why? <laughs> and he's like, because you cheated on me, man. And she's like, uh, what? You cheat on me all the time. Yeah. You cheat on her constantly. Yeah. And, and so he sent, he puts her on a, uh, a train back to uh, bullshit riddle. That's it. We don't see her for the rest of the movie. Yeah, you, we don't really see him for the rest of the movie. We just know that basically he won. We see him once. We see the uh, De Palma one more time at the very end. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This sort of, like, leads into, like, the, the, the like a prolonged period of just showing his excess. Like, he's starting to go crazy. He's completely isolated. He's alienated Marsha. He's starting to, 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 like, lash out at his crew. Like, really womanize and, and just become, like, this completely abhorrent piece of shit. But he turns it on for the cameras. Yeah. He turns on that character that they've built up. And he's constantly accumulating political power because he's continuing like work with the general, uh, and 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 sort of do this political advice in boardrooms. And uh, actually, one one line that he has that sort of really like struck me was uh, he says something to the effect of, uh, "You you you come to people and you 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 say smart things to them, uh, and they're they're going to think that you're a con man. They're going to think that you you think you're better than them and that you're trying to trick them." If you want to get, uh, if you want to get people to listen to you, come in and be gross and 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 dirty and stupid, and they'll listen to you because they'll trust that you're not that you don't think you're better than them. You you couldn't possibly be better than them. And he sort of espouses the power of vulgarity that like when you're when you debase yourself, 
it's it's a way of sort of making yourself more trustworthy. So he he really like espouses this ideology that I think like I, I know we say more George Bush, but it, it, there is a lot. That's of, like, where the Trump comparison comes. Yeah, in. where it's sort of like the power of vulgarity. Sure, is sure. is really like, of just saying gross shit and not trying to like dress it up. So after a certain point, like they're talking about making a whole new cabinet position for Lonesome. Yeah, if uh, this guy gets elected, they're gonna make him like the chief morale officer, basically like a propagandist, which he already is. But he's gonna be like like the like ultimate propaganda guy in case of national emergency, mm. be the face of America. And he mentions this to Marsha. And Marsha is realizing, oh God, I created this. This is what I did. Yeah. I, I built this up. He he says that in times of extreme emergency, uh, they need a person who can who can rally people and draw them in close to the uh, to the government. So like there is like touches of, of, of fascism sure. uh, to it. Uh, but it is like it is sort of that line between uh, be- the the blurring between like big business and and this sort of like gradual onset of the fascism. like the like merging of business and politics and entertainment. Yeah, that is what is discussed in this movie. That that like merger. Yeah, uh, because in a television based society, remember, like we're we're a couple of years away from the first televised presidential debates. Republicans will argue that television is the reason John Kennedy became president. Mm-hmm. This film is dealing with that at that particular time mm-hmm. and dealing with it in a very astute way, to be honest, uh, for something that was so fresh in their minds when it was being made. The climax of this is on set of Lonesome Rose's Cracker Barrel. Mm-hmm. Mar- Marsha is in there in a huff. She's been screwed over too many times and she's like very desperate and angry. She's refused to participate anymore. So Lonesome Rhodes has been scrambling to, to run the show himself, and he's screaming at people, and he's being a complete psychopath. And people are like, as Marsha rocks in, people are like, I'm quitting. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. His rhetoric is also getting increasingly conservative. Like, he's he, the one, like he's kind of ad-libbing. He's going more off the fly, and he's talking. And because he doesn't have, like, that ability to rehearse, he's talking about how women need to dress more conservatively and how we need to bring back the corset. Uh, he, he's absolutely doing the Bill O'Reilly, fuck it, we'll do it live! Yeah! He's in that mode. Yeah. yeah. He, he's not able to do that sort of, uh, like, that, that, that you women folk are unappreciated He's not able to do the, uh, the 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 acts of generosity towards a uh, like a, a poor black woman. It's like when he's just off the cuff and he's being himself. Conservatism is what's easy, and you can just like just his, his spout baseline. it off. Yeah, in the like key line, the like audio producer who is working the microphones, uh, turning the mics on and off as you know they go to commercial and come back says. If only they could hear the way that psychopath really talks. And then as the credits begin to roll on the Cracker Barrel, as the credits begin to roll on the television show, but they're still live, but the mics are dead, the sound engineer leaves, and Marsha is left in the sound booth, and she has this revelation, and she takes the little uh, the dial, essentially, on the mic, and slowly turns it up, and suddenly, Lonesome's tirade against uh, the American people is broadcast live over the airwaves. 
And then he comes down hard against just all of his orders, basically calling them slack-jawed yokels. He calls, he calls them idiots. He says they're guinea pigs, says that they're like trained seals and he can get them to do anything. And you're watching clips of people watch this and it's like like a group of old women. And remember, that was his first like audience. Yeah. He got like popular with the Aunt Bees of the world. Uh, and then it's like a clip of a bunch of Teamsters in a bar, a bunch of like construction workers in overalls watching the TV afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so, and they start calling the television station. They get real pissed. They get mad. It's a Batman return situation. And hey, guess what? By the way, this is the one thing that uh, they predicted incorrectly. Because turns out you can get someone on tape saying something horrible and it won't matter. Well, well all right. So, counterpoint. I mean, it, where where we're at right now, uh, there's been a lot of stories about uh Donald Trump's, like, disdain for his voting base and how much he hates them. Washington Post just did a story basically about uh, he constantly talks shit on Jeff Sessions because he thinks the Southern accent is stupid. He resents no longer being considered an elite. He hates that he's surrounded by these non-elites. He's no longer amongst New Yorkers. And the idea is, like, when eventually these people have to figure out that he hates their guts, right? So it, it, I don't think we've that's been proven wrong but i think there is the idea of like eventually people are going to figure out that 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 this person hates them that that's the some people think that's like the silver bullet that's going to kill trump definitely didn't kill bush so i mean if anything it was going to be the the the, the pussy tape the the access hollywood tape and that didn't do it so well i don't think that this is really com- comparable because it's talking shit on someone that they already don't respect uh, like, it's, I think it's more, uh, that he talks shit on them. Okay. And he, he talks shit on poor people, specifically. Yeah. He talks, he, he's... They were his base. Yeah. So, so Lonesome Roads has no idea that this is happening. He has no idea that this happened. And there's a very great sequence where he, like, leaves the studio and he's on his way to a big important meeting. He's having a big banquet with all the fundraisers for the political action that he's going to do. Uh, and he gets in the elevator and there's a sequence of him going down. You watch the numbers just drop on the elevator. Ding, ding, ding. Cut against people calling. The switchboard operators are just like going nuts at the, the studio. Ding, ding, ding. The numbers keep getting lower and lower and lower. By the time he's at the bottom, he doesn't even know it yet, but he's basically been fired. This is where we see De Palma again. They give one phone call to Joey De Palma. Uh, the sponsors are pulling out, and we see De Palma at a restaurant with another guy who's like, "Hey, I got your next Lonesome Roads right here." So De Palma's already got a replacement in the wings. Yeah, Lonesome Roads has no idea. He doesn't know until he gets back to his penthouse, where he's supposed to be having a giant banquet, and nobody comes. Yeah, the only people there are the wait staff. Which are all black men in suits. Who he, like, begs them to love him, but then also turns around and calls them monkeys. By the way, want to point out, there are more black people and more black people with lines in this movie than there are in the entirety of the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. Just gotta say it. What, what he's, like, also doing is, uh, earlier they've established that they're trying to automate audience participation. They basically, on, like, in one scene, invent the laugh track. I'm like, look, I can press a button and they'll say, they'll laugh or they'll, they'll go, ooh, or they'll do a, like, a light chuckle. So we can just completely automate audience participation. No one will ever know the difference. So when 
he he calls Marsha over and and basically says to me the effect of if you don't come over, I'm gonna kill myself again. Marsha does say jump, fucking do yeah. it. Go ahead and jump. And her friend, another writer, Walter Matthau, who we've managed to go this entire time without mentioning. Well, Walter, Walter Matthau's Ma- in this movie. Walter Matthau does nothing in this movie. He just yeah. kind of hangs out and he's like, I'm commenting on the thing that's happening. He's the hornbeck of this movie. He's just like the smart-ass reporter that hangs out in the back. and Yeah. yeah. He uh, smokes next to the thing that's happening and just kind of goes like, I have feelings based off of this. Yeah. So Walter Matthau is in this movie. And Walter Matthau basically is like, I don't, I don't believe you. You're yeah. going to go there. You're going to go to that apartment, so why don't I just go with you? Yeah. So the two of them go to the apartment together, and that's where they find Lonesome Rhodes in the middle of a full breakdown. He's basically doing a political rally at a laugh track. Yeah. He's, he's, he's rallying people to, like, support of the government, uh, again, just, just to this, this, this applause that he's, like, making happen on the machine. His, his little skinny sidekick, Beanie, is, is clicking the machine. Yeah. On and off for him, because Beanie, who is an idiot, is the only person still standing with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in true Barney Fife fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. Get your, get yourself a Barney Fife. Someone who'll stand by you in thick, through thick and thin. Get a man who looks at you like <laughs> Barney looks at Andy. And and then basically she reveals that she did it, that that she's the one that betrayed him. She storms out and he he sort of yells like, "I'll be back! I'll be back on top! There'll just be a cooling off period." And this is where Walter Matthau gets his one scene. Finally shows up. Yeah, yeah. And he basically does the thing of like, "You will be back. Uh, eventually, people are going to forget what you said because people forget. Uh, and then someone's going to decide that they're going to give you another shot." And you'll probably come back, and you'll probably have a spot, but you'll never be as big ever again, and you'll never have an upward trajectory ever again, and you're just kind of going to be mediocre forever. And then they walk out to the sound of him screaming, Marsha, Marsha, over and over again. Pretty streetcar name design. Very streetcar. Yeah. You know that, like, very recently, somebody had that same conversation with Matt Lauer. Yeah. Or Louis C.K. Like... Somebody definitely had that same conversation. Maybe Harvey Weinstein, probably not. They always come back. I think, like, this has been a week of just kind of proving they always come back. Yeah. You you think that this this is finally the thing that'll, like, put him in the ground, but no. Like, that zombie always climbs back out. So, yeah, the last scene, the last shot is uh, Walter Matthau and Marsha leaving, uh, and it's... Like, over, I guess it's Times Square, but it's just a Coca-Cola sign flashing. Well, he screamed, Marsha! Marsha. That's a face in the crowd. That's a quick summary of a face in the crowd. We left off a bunch of stuff. I I feel like we should talk about why we're talking about it, other than just, like, Andy Griffith is in it. Yeah, so, what I said earlier was that this has made me lose a lot of the, like, plausible deniability that I used to give Andy Griffith Mm -hmm. uh, and the crew from Mayberry. They sold America Mayberry. Yeah. They sold America on Mayberry hardcore. They made them believe on this in this, like, small town tradition. If you hear me earlier on in this season, I'm saying stuff like it was inadvertent. Uh, I think they were trying to just be a little bit of escapism. And then without realizing it, the escapism became flat-out denial. Watching this film has made me go, he knew exactly what he yeah. was doing. There's no way you can make a movie like this and not know exactly what you're doing. But the thing is, right, Chuck Klosterman has this point in one of his essays uh, where he talks about 
John Cusack and how all women of a certain age are in love with John mm-hmm. Cusack. But they think that John Cusack is Lloyd Dobler. Yeah. Like, for them, John Cusack is Lloyd Dobler and uh, say anything. And all other roles are just Cusack acting. But in real life, he's that guy. Mm-hmm. For people who are fans of the Andy Griffith show, Andy Griffith and Andy Taylor are indistinguishable from one another. And Andy Griffith himself has even said, like, I think Andy Taylor's kind of the best part of me. Yeah. Uh, again, because he was selling that. If you think about it in those terms, probably, like, Andy Taylor is the good side, but, like, Lonesome Rhodes is the dark side. Kind of like a two-faced, like a Harvey Dent mm-hmm. kind of situation. But he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. He knew precisely what he was doing. A movie, he was in a movie that laid out, if you adopt this small-town Oshucks persona... You can basically trick people and control people and get them to buy into that, and you can make a lot of money doing so. And then Andy Griffith did a show that did that. For eight years! Yes! He watched the movie and he was like, oh, that's a pretty good point. I could do that. So now, not only do I think Andy Taylor, the character, is a con man, I think Andy Griffith was a goddamn con man. Matlock was a role that he played, right? Yeah. The old man and waitress was a role that he played. Lonesome Rhodes was a role that he played. Andy Griffith was Andy Taylor. That's, to, to fans of this show, they are one and the same. I mean, it it has to be so seductive to just, like, to just take on this, like, persona. Like, it's, Andy Taylor is a powerful, like, powerful figure for the very reason that makes him, like, fucked up. Like, this sort of, like... This this down home, some simultaneously simple but superior mega dad, and yeah. to have everyone look at you as that, as just like America's dad, has got to be like kind of akin to being a rock star. I mean, we do this with all celebrities, right? Yeah. Like you have an idea in your head of what Tom Hanks is like. Yeah, he's America's dad. Yeah, you you have an idea in your head of what like Jennifer Lawrence is, right? Jennifer Lawrence's whole like. I'm hot, but I'm a normal girl. I'm like your friend who like drinks beer. That's that's all manufactured. Okay, but that's all bullshit. But Jennifer Lawrence has zero political power. A, an aspect of that is like I go up to Charlie Day, and I'm like the, the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Sure, and I'm going to see him as his character Charlie on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But his whole what I'm going to see him as is like, oh, I bet you're a a, a a goofy idiot, huh? Like I'm if I see if I if I see someone who is. Uh, their their whole thing is being hot in movies. I'm going to see them as like the hot person. Megan Fox. Yeah, yeah, Megan Fox. Whatever. His an inherent part of his persona is being right about everything and being and being smarter. Uh, and, and it's built into the character and the persona being smarter than you for literally no reason by being smarter than you by virtue of being dumber than you, like like the Lonesome Roads does really lay out with the concept of riddle like. These people are smarter than you because everything you've learned from society has corrupted the way that you view the world. And you view the world as overly complex when in reality it's really simple. And the people of Riddle get that. And Andy Griffith gets that. And you should, you should listen to that. And, and so I think it's, it's almost – it's got to be like akin to – but just, just the role he was in, it's got to be akin to being sort of like in the Rolling Stones or something. Just like – the, that 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 like sense of power, like the only person who walks off of that set with any kind of plausible deniability is Ronnie Howard. Yeah, because he was a child. Yeah, he, uh, he had no idea. But like I've said it before, when Ron Howard, who was kind of like hashtag resistance, 
bashes Trump and starts to starts to talk to like MAGA people. They want the candy that he sold them. Yeah. They sold America on this idea. And they sold it hard. Yeah. And it was not accidental. Giving the benefit of the doubt, I think the like political force that the Mayberry ideal became, that's probably accidental. Yeah. Andy Griffith himself was uh much like Elia Kazan, like concerned with social issues, but not all the way to the left of communism. Yeah. Yeah. Andy Griffith was a uh, like Barack Obama Democrat. Yeah. Uh, in fact, maybe we'll maybe we'll do that for the Obama campaign. Andy and Ron Howard appeared together one last time in character. What uh, to stump for Obama? Yes. <laughs> I need to watch that. Yeah, I'm sure it's on the world. It's out there in the on the web somewhere. Holy um, shit! Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, no, I think this does sort of. Uh, it, it it feels like like watching this movie felt like peering behind the curtain of the Andy Griffith show, and like we this entire time we've been doing this, we've had like we've had like suspicions over like the way that this worked, and then th- there's just a movie going like yeah, all the worst ways you viewed this, that's right, yeah, yeah, we're absolutely vindicated. Show over, Bye. yeah. Uh, <laughs> ah, crap. Yeah, we should have done this last. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I I think we'll we'll we're going to be very surprised by the 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 depths of of shit that they're able to get into once Gomer Pyle finally arrives, because uh, they're man. going to get into a whole nother level of uh of simple people are smarter than you. I, I think that I think that wraps it up for us. Yeah, yeah, that that wraps it up for us. You um, should definitely go to your like local library. I guess not a video store because they don't exist anymore. You should watch a face in the crowd. Oh, hey, can, can we do can we do Andy meters for this? Oh, can we do ratings. Okay, um, Andy meter a, a ten. ten. It's a fucking ten. ten. It's, it's great. A, it it's rules. an awesome movie. I don't know why it's not more famous. Uh, it, it wasn't really like a critical success when it came out, or a commercial success. Yeah, no, it was but, actually kind of critically panned. But like upon reevaluation, it became more and more famous, uh, and it's in the national registry of like important films. Yeah, but yeah, so ten ten Andys. Also, ten fives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ten, ten fives, but I feel like it's sort of like, it It feels like, um, like a deep throat situation. Like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thankful to it in that it feels like an episode of the Andy Griffith show is like, having me meet it in a parking lot to be like, hey, everything you think about this show is accurate. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm thankful to this in terms of its moral reprehensibility. It's it's like it's a good ten on the FIFO meter. Yeah, it's 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 a solid ten. Yeah. Um. All right. So that's it for us for the season. Yeah. Um. Uh, we're gonna be back. I'm gonna say October. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. We're gonna take some time to you know get our shit together. Uh, yeah. Uh. Dan, talk about some of the stuff we're gonna be doing for our Patreon subscribers though. So for our Patreon subscribers, we are starting to take requests. Uh. A Patreon subscriber, Ingrid, has picked our first feature, which is The Littlest Hobo, which is a little no. Is it The Littlest Hobo? It's called The Littlest Hobo. Yeah. It is? Okay. I, I literally just, like, it's it's such a weird name that I, like, I, I, I psyched myself out for a second. It's The Littlest Hobo. It's the story of a dog that wander, wanders from town to town, from the, what I can understand, solving mysteries. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like a Lassie meets, like, Incredible Hulk kind of situation. And and uh, we're watching I, I, one particular episode where he is chased by a scientist that thinks that it's some sort of new form of super dog. 
Um, similar to, I think, the way that we're going to try to understand uh, America through the Andy Griffith Show, we're going to try to understand Canada through the Littlest Hobo. <laughs> <laughs> and I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm going to draw all of my conclusions about this country from this TV show forever. <laughs> This is my new north on the compass for what is Canada. Uh, so that's what we're going to be working on. We'll, we'll put out, like, some extra content. Some we Don't forget about us. Yeah. We'll have some stuff over the next month. But uh, from now on, until then, please go back, share all the past episodes with your friends. This is a good time to get caught up. Yeah. Uh, and a good time to send us your uh, your thoughts and your feelings and your Andy Griffith theme song covers. Please. Yeah, so you can get at us. We are on the internet. BreakingMayberry at gmail.com is the email. On Twitter, we are at BreakMayberry. On Twitter, I am at SchneidRemarks. I'm at the Luds. Before we close out the season, thank you everyone for just listening to us. Uh, I, I, I can't believe that you that you guys are like willing to listen to us ramble about this, and I'm so thankful that you enjoy us. And it's been a this is one of the most fun things I've ever done in my entire life, and I'm really grateful that there are people who enjoy it. In the meantime, please share us with your friends and give us those ratings and reviews. Uh, let us still have your attention while we're away. Please. Um, if you don't look at me, I'll die. <laughs> I guess in a little while, we'll see you down at the fishing hole. Yeah, I'll come back now. I wish I could do a Totoro impression. Just do it Try. Right I, 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 no, You're so nobody, close. Nobody fucking with the Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, you might edit that out, but I've heard worse. <laughs>